Hi, I'm Randy Guy, Commissioner President of St. Mary's County, Maryland, and you're tuned in to Mako's Conduit Street Podcast. Whether you're a Maryland resident, a government official, or just someone interested in learning more about public policy in Maryland, this podcast is for you. And welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. This is your super substitution, Sarah Sample from the Mako Policy Team. And I'm once again stepping in today for our regular hosts, Michael Sanderson and Kevin Canale. And today we are going to discuss a very timely topic, which is where we are on COVID-19, especially as we venture deeper into another winter. And one major thing is different. This winter, we are officially outside of the federal state of emergency. And this is the first time since 2020, I believe it is. So joining me today, we have a very special guest. We have Dr. Lawrence Polsky, who is the Calvert County Health Officer. As our audience has undoubtedly heard before, the health officers are the local officials in every county that ensure the core tenets of public health are being met. And a very significant part of that role focuses on preventing infectious disease. So welcome, Dr. Polsky. Well, thank you, Sarah. And thank you and Michael for extending the invitation. It's great to be back with you. Absolutely. We are so excited to have you. And just for our audience, how long have you been with the Calvert County Health Office, like as the health officer? Now, uh, if I think through the COVID haze, it's now been 11, <laughs> 11 years over here. Uh, All right. So you you were there through the beginning of this and now coming out the other side. So that's that's a wonderful perspective we're excited to have. And so the major areas that we want to cover today are what the current climate is on COVID-19 and preparedness. So, you know, things like vaccines and testing, uh, and then also how policy can affect those goals and outcomes. So does that sound good to you? Yeah, no, that sounds fine. All right, great. So I guess first we'll we'll dive into sort of the topic of post-pandemic climate and preparedness. So why is this climate we're in right now different from when we were in the emergency phase? Like what is, what's fundamentally changed here? Well, certainly a lot has changed. And, and you think about how much we've learned over the past uh, three and a half years now. Uh, so I'll I'll flip to maybe what I think are, are some of the most important things. And, and I would start out with the, the vaccines that we have available uh, that uh, in those early days of COVID, when hospitals were overflowing and uh, people were uh, emotionally very tense uh, about mm-hmm. what was going on. Uh, now everyone has a chance to protect themselves with vaccination. And we should keep in mind that vaccines do a very good job of protecting us both from acute infection and also decrease our risks of long COVID. Uh, and as right. the COVID virus continues to mutate, staying up to date on vaccinations is really essential. Uh, vaccine formulations that were recently released, and I'm, I'm sure that most of your listeners uh, heard about two weeks ago, the FDA and CDC we're approving a new formulation. Those new formulations are uh, produce antibody levels about four to 10 times greater against the strains of COVID currently circulating than our previous vaccine formulation. Wow, that's a great jump. And does that help with the prevention of long COVID as well? It, it does. And, and we have now multiple well-done studies that show that people who are up to date on their vaccination not only are much less likely to get sick, but even if they end up with a mild illness, uh, that they are much likely to uh, end up with persisting symptoms. And as a reminder, 
long COVID can take several forms. For some people, it's more quality of life issues. They feel chronically fatigued and really significant fatigue uh, where it's hard for them to get to work, for children hard to really concentrate and focus in school, um, clouded thinking. And then the other aspects of long COVID uh, can be serious illness. So we now have multiple studies. A recent one just came out of the VA that uh, showed that people are diagnosed with new onset diabetes at more than double the rate in the following year after COVID than those who have not been infected with COVID. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, the the prospects of vaccine is, again, not only that initial illness with COVID, but also the long-term effects. Right. And, and those long-term effects, those long COVID effects, I mean, that sounds like it doesn't just affect you every day, but it affects almost the things that you're going to do every day, like even just the simple things. So yeah, that yeah, that that's rough. <laughs> yeah. And and again, for parents to keep in mind that although children uh, are not as likely uh, as a percentage of those who who get COVID to develop long COVID, uh, still the uh, studies that have looked uh, at children have shown about a five to seven percent incidence of long COVID uh, symptoms, even in kids. Oh, wow. OK. Well, so. Well, that's really important to know, especially as we're going into another flu season. And so, you know, before we start talking about this season, where COVID-19 was concerned last year, what did that flu season look like? And and what do we expect this year? So last year, our flu season was actually relatively mild, uh, but each flu season is really different. One year, we can't predict the next. Uh, It's important to know that this year's flu vaccine looks like a good match based on the studies out of Australia and South America, where they're now coming out of their flu season. Uh, So keep in mind that in the Southern Hemisphere, everything is flipped. Most of the time, the strains that are circulating in the Southern Hemisphere in what is our summer migrate up uh, north, and that becomes our predominant uh, virus strains in our winter. So with a, a a vaccine formulation this year that looks like a good match, um, you know, very important for people to take advantage uh, of getting uh, vaccinated, not just against COVID, but also against the flu. And I'll throw out a quick reminder to business owners that viral illnesses increase employee absences. And if employees come to work sick, they're less productive and they make more mistakes. So there's not only a health incentive to prevent both flu and COVID infections, but also an economic incentive to keep employees healthy. So aside from the direct medical costs, um, seasonal influenza costs the Maryland economy about $150 million each year, mostly as a result of decreased job productivity. So I would encourage business owners and managers uh, to um, incentivize their employees to get both flu and COVID vaccines, allow staff time off if they become ill, because it's certainly better to lose one employee for a few days than have most of their shift uh, shiftmates uh, out for days uh, or even a week. Uh, right. a few days later. So really boosting that accessibility, but also doing it now or even like, you know, a month ago, just because, yeah, because the worse it gets, the harder it's going to be to to get that time away. Absolutely. Especially as you have more and more people who are catching it. So another thing and that's interesting, what you say about um, Australia, it's it's nice. I mean, I didn't think about it that way, where you sort of have a bit of foreshadowing for how and some of what what of a forecast for how our winter might look. And I, yeah, I never considered that that was really giving us a glimpse into the future, almost in a way. Right. And and that's how they, uh, when the uh, the FDA, CDC, and the um, vaccine manufacturers decide on which strains of flu they'll base that year's uh, vaccine on, because keep in mind that for the flu vaccine, it changes every year. 
they take a look early in, in the flu season in the southern hemisphere and start doing their modeling, making predictions. Some years, unfortunately, the flu strains continue to mutate and it isn't a good match. But again, this year looks like a very good match. Great. Well, so then I guess also when it comes to the vaccines, give our audience a little bit of an example of the kind of the dangers or the sort of catastrophic scenarios we're trying to prevent. I mean, this year and every year when it comes to a highly transmissible virus and how that can weigh on resources. Yeah. So um, even before COVID appeared, we've had many winters in Maryland where hospitals are overflowing due to flu and RSV cases. Maybe we'll talk a little bit about RSV uh, during yeah. the course of the interview. Um, and uh, I spent most of my career before I uh, switched over to public health um, as a regular day-to-day physician taking care of patients both in the office and in the hospital. And there were years where um, surgery cases had to be canceled because there was no room in the in the ICU. There was no room up on the floors. Uh, so every year is really roll the dice in terms of severity of influenza strains, how severe RSV is going to impact that year. And now with COVID added on top of everything, there's even higher probabilities of maxing out emergency rooms and ICUs. So, you know, it's really important to keep in mind that influenza, RSV, and COVID all stress people's bodies. And not only the direct illness, meaning pneumonia from influenza or COVID, but also these illnesses increase the risks of heart attacks, serious breathing problems, strokes, other medical complications that require emergency room and ICU care. So the more we do as a community to minimize transmission of viruses, really the safer we all are. And regardless, I'll just add really quickly that regardless of how healthy any of us are, you know, we're all just a car crash or an infected appendix away from needing a hospital admission. So it's really in everyone's interest to have local hospital resources available when we need them. Yeah, especially when you think a little bit about resource depletion and how we can avoid that, because those car accidents are still going to happen. And so when you when you have too many of the resources being sapped up, then you sort of have this chain reaction where things that are easy, not easy, but we're able to deal with uh, because we have the capacity that becomes more and more difficult. So you have people potentially suffering exacerbated circumstances for something that wouldn't have been as difficult to deal with if we didn't have as much of that weight on the resources. And essentially that's what the vaccines can help us avoid. Absolutely. And and you think about if your local hospital is at capacity uh, and something life-threatening happens to you or a family member and the ambulance has to divert to another county or across a metropolitan area, you know, that extra 20, 30 minutes to get to another hospital, you know, could make a life and death difference. And Absolutely. we also, I think in every community uh, across the state, we're dealing with with worker shortages in hospitals, in nurses, respiratory therapists, physicians. Uh, you know, when we have unnecessary admissions in hospitals, that just further stresses and strains uh, the staff uh, that are working in, in every hospital across the state. Definitely. We need those people there to make sure that the care can be can be executed. So you talked a little bit about the vaccines so far and how they're different, but maybe you can explore that a little bit more. So can you explain how these vaccines differ from the original versions that were used during, like, let's say, the mass vaccination process? I mean, you more or less were saying they're updated and they're being updated, you know, consistent with what strains we're seeing elsewhere. Is that the case? Yeah. So the COVID vaccines, I'm sure people recall that uh, the the vaccines that we mostly use uh, are uh, what are termed mRNA vaccines. So it's a, a different technology than flu vaccines. People get vaccines for tetanus. 
um, there was, I think, some misinformation uh, in the early stages when the vaccines were being rolled out that somehow this was just some abrupt new thing out of the blue. Uh, mRNA technology was gradually developed over about 30 years and, and fortunately came into prime time just as COVID appeared. Uh, and so the mRNA vaccines, the production of the vaccine is much different. Older vaccines, oftentimes they would have to inoculate chicken eggs. Uh, other sorts of formats were very kind of labor intensive and had impurities in there. With this technology, uh, the uh, the scientists are actually able to take a, a small uh, bit of mRNA or messenger RNA uh, from that corresponds to the surface proteins, or I think most of us are familiar with spike protein now. Mm -hmm. The spike proteins for COVID vaccine, for the COVID virus, uh, unfortunately have, um, it turned out to be a very malleable part of the surface. So as we see new variants pop up, there are sometimes subtle and sometimes more abrupt changes in the structure of that surface protein or that, that spike protein. Um, as a result, the vaccine that was developed a year or two years before it doesn't quite bind on and neutralize the virus as well. So with the new vaccine, what they've taken is the corresponding mRNA uh, from the most recent set of variants, the XB uh, family of variants. And so, as I mentioned earlier, when they tested these new vaccines for the about half dozen predominant strains that are circulating right now, the antibody levels that were generated were anywhere from four to 10 times higher than with the bivalent. So we're now okay. on generation three of mRNA vaccines. And so the beauty of these mRNA vaccines is that it is relatively easy to continue to update to match what is circulating. So the anticipation is that probably once a year, we'll end up with a new formulation same technology, just a new formulation that best matches and best neutralizes the um, strains of COVID that are circulating. Got it. Well, so one thing I've been reading about, you know, as it relates to sort of updating the vaccines is something called uh, Novavax, I want to say it is. And so, and I had read that it does, it's not, it's not based on the mRNA, I want to say it's, it's something else. Because how does that fit into the equation? I'm sure our audience members have, have read about that as well, because I've seen it all over the place. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how it fits in? Yeah, so there were there were two other vaccines that were available earlier in addition to the mRNA, which the Moderna and the Pfizer are the mRNAs. Okay. Um, so one was Novavax and one was Johnson & Johnson. Johnson Johnson has essentially been taken off the market. Uh, it turned out to just not be as good of a vaccine. Novavax uh, is actual spike protein. So the mRNA vaccines... Uh, when uh, when that's administered, it actually prompts our immune system or our cells. I'm sorry, not our immune system, our cells to produce its own spike protein, um, and and then as a as a result, uh, we internally produce antibodies. Oh, no so it's like an immuno booster in a way. Well, um, sort of. It's just a different way of getting the, the spike protein itself into the body. And so Novavax okay. directly has the spike protein as opposed to prompting our bodies to manufacture it. Ah, um, the, the issue right now with Novavax is that uh, it is still pending FDA approval. And so okay. the FDA generally doesn't comment as to why they haven't approved a vaccine at that point. Uh, last year, 
there were um, some issues with the production facility. There was no problem with the safety of the vaccine, but there were some issues with the production facility uh, and that just delayed release. So it's unclear at this point whether they're still revamping uh, at their production facility or something else. So I, I can't comment about the effectiveness of the Novavax mm-hmm. uh, vaccine because we just don't have the data at this point. Got it. Well, so then for the, the vaccines that we do have and the boosters, you know, so if I went to my, I'm in Anne Arundel County, if I went to the local health center um, in Anne Arundel County, is there a cost for the vaccines? For uh, for everyone with insurance, regardless of what kind of insurance you have, whether it's Medicare, whether it's state insurance, Medicaid, uh, or a commercial insurer like Care First or Aetna, uh, there is no out-of-pocket cost for uh, any of the COVID vaccines. Uh, and I'll say same for the flu vaccine uh, as well. So um, for anyone at this point who is going to schedule an appointment, they don't have to worry about um, to payment for that. For people who don't have insurance, there will now be full out-of-pocket cost. So uh, the federal government stopped purchasing the uh, COVID vaccines, I think it was around spring. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so with the release of these new vaccines, for the first time, they will be paid uh, uh, like any other vaccine that you would get. It would go through your insurance. Got it. Because of the uh, essentially, you know, people would say we're saying the COVID vaccines were free. We all know that you know those are tax dollars at work. Yeah. Um, but regardless, uh, re- whether you had insurance or didn't have insurance previously, uh, no one had to pull out their insurance card. No, nobody had any copays. So people without insurance had no barriers to getting vaccinated. Now, if they go to the pharmacy, it's about one hundred and twenty-five dollars a dose, which is going to be prohibitive for some people. Definitely. Uh, but um, we're both at the state level and federal level. Um, it, it's a work in progress as to how to make vaccines uh, affordable for people who lack insurance. Got it. Well, so on the subject of the flu season generally, and you'd mentioned this before. So obviously, COVID has been the topic of you know conversation for us so far. But it's not the only virus that virus that fills hospital beds in the winter. So there's been a lot of talk about RSV that you had just mentioned earlier. Um, so let's talk a little bit about that. But first of all, what's the acronym? Is it respiratory syncytial? Well, how do you always say this? Yeah, that's very good. Yeah, respiratory syncytial virus. So. Okay, got it. Um, so talk a little bit about what people should understand about RSV and what they can do to keep their children and themselves safer. Right. So RSV is, for some reason, just flown under the radar as far as... Um, general public being aware of this, but yeah. certainly it's a, a virus that for many, many years uh, has taken a significant toll. So during, And it was talked about a lot last year. I feel like that was one of the first yes. times I remember really seeing it everywhere. Right. So during, and, and this like uh, influenza is typically a late fall winter virus, uh, although sometimes there's a little bit of variation. Uh, and, and on an average year, there are about 60,000 hospitalizations across the U.S. just among children under age five as a result of RSV uh, and about 200 pediatric deaths each year. Uh, RSV is actually the leading cause of hospitalization for children below the age of two. And uh, what you reference is hearing it for the first time last year. That's probably because there was really a crisis in pediatric hospital beds across the state 
Uh, and this was due almost solely to RSV cases. Wow. Um, on the other end of the age spectrum, uh, meaning for those 65 and older, um, annually there's actually about 100,000 hospitalizations due to RSV and about 8,000 deaths. So uh, I, I can talk a little bit about the vaccines uh, and uh, the other new aspect is what, what is an antibody inoculation. So I'll, I'll try to just briefly go through that. Yeah, I saw an article about this. So yeah, I'd love to hear hear your perspective on it. Yeah, so RSV vaccines at this point have only been approved for those 60 and older and for pregnant women, uh, particularly in the third trimester. Uh, they are currently doing research uh, to see how appropriate the vaccine would be for those under 60, particularly people with chronic health problems who are more likely to end up being hospitalized. So that is something to keep an eye on for anyone who's listening who's under 60 and has diabetes or has chronic heart disease, kidney problems, that it's possible, and I, I would say likely, that RSV vaccines will be available for them probably sometime over the next year, maybe not in time for this uh, this season. Uh, and, and pregnant women, uh, the reason that that approval was made by the FDA is that when a pregnant woman gets a vaccine, whether it's a flu vaccine, in this case, RSV, COVID vaccine, the antibodies that she produces, some of those antibodies travel through the placenta, through the umbilical cord, and into the baby. So that when the oh, baby's wow. born, that child will have circulating antibodies, which last for about six months, which is around the time, not so coincidentally, uh, around the time that the baby's immune system really starts to move more into gear. Wow. So it gets a head start in a way. Right. So I didn't mention that vaccines have been approved for children, even though I just said that the leading cause of hospitalization for children is RSV. Uh, and that's because at the moment, uh, what they are, uh, what the, what the um, CDC and, and the manufacturers are going with is an antibody inoculation. So a monoclonal antibody. It's a little bit confusing the way it's been uh, explain because they just talk about it as inoculations, which I think for most people they think about as a vaccine. Yeah. The difference between them is a vaccine is uh, 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 something that is then stimulating our immune system to produce its own antibodies. And there are additional aspects of the immune system, which I don't want to give a whole lecture on how <laughs> T-cells work and all this kind of stuff. But um, But vaccines are prompting our body to mount an immune response. What has been approved for for young children are actual antibodies themselves. It's a long-lasting antibody formulation. It lasts for about five months, and it's recommended for anywhere from newborns up to age uh, eight months. And then for children who have significant underlying health problems, for children who have congenital heart conditions or cystic fibrosis, then it's approved up to about a year and a half for those children. So the antibody shot uh, is about 80% protective against illness that's serious enough to require a doctor's care and about 80% effective against hospitalization. The issue right now is that uh, not a lot has been produced and there's uh, also a payment issue with this. A point. limited supply. And and the insurers haven't completely worked out how they're going to pay for this. So um, for, again, any any new parents listening with very young children, they can check with their pediatrician. I just can't guarantee that the um, the formulation will be available to them uh, for this season. For wow. Medicaid, uh, there should be no cost barrier. And so for anyone who has Medicaid insurance or their ch child has Medicaid insurance, um, they should be able to 
get the um, inoculation if it's available. They should be able to get it without any cost at this point. Interesting. So, so basically, if I'm getting this right, you know, what you're sort of explaining is that instead of something where it's telling the body to produce X, like to produce the antibodies, they're essentially getting an antibody that their body will then be able to start to replicate. So they, they don't need to replicate anything. It's actually that um, now we have the technology to be able to produce in the laboratory, uh, to be able to produce antibodies in mass quantities. Uh, and and then so that the uh, injection itself is purified antibody. Uh, and again, that will circulate in the baby system for research has shown for, for a good five months. So if a child gets that inoculation, let's say in early October, then uh, that child will be protected through the end of February, maybe a little bit into March, which again, typically RSV is most prevalent in the fall and into the winter. Right. Okay. Well, so then, so then that's the viruses that we're super worried about. So let's maybe switch to the policy side and sort of the regulatory side of, of this conversation. So federal, state, and local cooperation, you know, between those three, there's a bit of an ecosystem here um, that is intended to fulfill the public health mission, especially as it relates to infectious disease. So what what is collaboration like with, let's say, the state, the Maryland Department of Health uh, at the state level, and then the locals? Like, what, what should that prevention strategy look like as far as how we can collaborate with them? And, and is there guidance coming down from the state? The Maryland Department of Health has been following CDC guidance for COVID-related issues, which makes it easier for us at the local level. We don't see, you know, conflicts between policy there. Got it. Local, health, local health officers meet at least monthly with our colleagues up at MDH. And I'll say that, um, I, and I talked to my colleague, my other uh, health officer colleagues uh, on a very regular basis. We we all have discussions with experts at university. University of Maryland School of Medicine, Johns Hopkins, our local infectious disease specialists, and staff at our local hospitals. Um, so it, it's clear to all of us that the landscape can change at any time. And communication between state and local officials and between local partners is really critical to best safeguard the members of our community. Yeah. Well, so, and then from the federal perspective, is it sort of that same sort of chain, chain link where the federal agencies are communicating directly with the state and then the state is filtering that down or is there local county collaboration with some of the federal agencies that are working on this? There is certainly communication between the federal level and state, uh, each of the states. Also, um, the CDC makes accessible to health professionals, including uh, each of your local um, health officers, uh, makes information directly accessible. And I, I know that I regularly join um, calls that the CDC hosts with infectious disease experts from around the country. Uh, and and so uh, federal communication is both via the state down to local levels, but also directly from federal to local level. Got it. So then, so the best case scenario is for the state. So it sounds like the CDC sets the guidelines and the state and local sort of work together and collaborate to make sure that the guidelines are are carried out. And that's sort of what it should look like. Yeah. Uh, and uh, as we're discussing, really, communication is paramount. Um, yeah. and, uh, and and I mentioned a little bit before about a program to try to help people without insurance be able to access COVID vaccines. So that's some people may have heard uh, referred to as a bridge access program. So that's a good example of, of how the different levels, federal, state, local, are trying to work together. The federal government is 
shipping in the process of shipping vaccines out to each of the states. The states in turn are then uh, allocating out to the local levels and then on the local levels for health departments, possibly for federally qualified health centers as well. They'll have limited amounts, but they'll have vaccine that they can provide to community members. Got it. Yeah. So bridge, it's sort of filling that gap in access for for some populations. Yeah. Right. And, yeah. and I just, if I can take a minute just to add about communication. I think it's really important both at state level and local level that health professionals, public health professionals, health professionals in the private sector, that we're communicating with residents and business owners across Maryland. I think there's just been so much misinformation, some of it malicious, uh, that it's important for people to have trusted sources they can turn to when they're uncertain about you know, what they're seeing or reading, especially when it comes to social media. So aligning state and local messages in formats that people can really understand, not just a bunch of medical jargon, but you know, something that people can really appreciate. Flow really charts help. and things. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, it's going to go a long way in helping people make better decisions about their health, the health of their children. And ultimately, from a public health standpoint, that's what's most important to us is that we're really the conduits of helping people take good care of themselves. Yeah. Well, and I see, too, like the point you were making about the businesses. I mean, there's obviously an economic impact, uh, but also if you're communicating effectively with some of those uh, small and larger businesses, you have the potential for them to be hearing a larger audience to be hearing the information at one time, but also the potential that it's the second time that they're hearing it. If you're communicating with residents and with businesses that are also communicating with residents. Absolutely. So it doubles down on that communication effort. So it makes a lot of sense. So then I guess, you know, leading into this winter, I mean, do you feel like we're prepared? We're ready to go? Well, we're certainly in a lot better position than we were in the past. And the, the one thing that worries me a bit is that people become a bit apathetic, that mm-hmm. Lesher wasn't horrible. It, I mean, we still had yeah. a significant number of deaths. COVID still filled a lot of hospital beds, uh, but that people can just sort of take it for granted that things are naturally just going to continue to get better. That's not necessarily the case. So I really would encourage people to take advantage of the updated vaccine. I got mine last Thursday mm-hmm. um, and um, no side effects. A uh, little bit of a sore arm, but that was about it. Yeah. Uh, and I got my flu vaccine uh, the week prior. Right. So um, you know, take advantage of that. And then all the things that we've learned Again, I would hate to see that go to waste. Yeah, so, or slide backwards. You know, so if we stay vigilant, then we're less likely to have sort of a backslide in terms of how much progress we've made this far. Right. So you know, wear a face covering when you're in a high risk setting, especially as we move into the late fall and winter when viruses are are going to be at higher uh, higher levels across our communities, and when we do get sick, you know, staying away from other people so we don't end up un- inadvertently. Uh, spreading it to people who are more vulnerable. Exactly. So and well, then I guess, you know, another question I would have for you is, so obviously get the vaccine, get the booster, you know, make sure we're protecting ourselves, but then are where where is the state and the locals on masks right now? Is it pretty much, you know, do what you think you need to do and be responsible? I, I would be surprised at this point if we see any mandates. Yeah. Uh, I, I think barring a variant that would be, um, would significantly evade the vaccines we have, which fortunately at this point we're not seeing. Mm-hmm. And uh, that same variant being very pathogenic, meaning that it induces very severe illness. 
Um, I can't really foresee us going back to a point where there are mandates. I think it's more personal responsibility at this point. And again, being conscious of the well-being of your neighbors, your coworkers, um, and you know, doing your best to not inadvertently get other people sick. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Polsky. I appreciate you being here. This is really, this is priceless information for our audience. Absolutely. My pleasure. All right, gang, let's wrap up another podcast. If you enjoy the content you have heard today and in other episodes, then please subscribe. That way you will receive all the episodes directly to the device of your choice. And if you're feeling up to it, give us that five-star review to let others know what they're missing out on in the world of local government policy and practices. You can also keep up with Conduit Street content on social media, including Facebook and X, formerly known as Twitter. You know, but the URL is still twitter.com. X.com is only a redirect. So maybe we're still calling it Twitter. Anyways, and last but not least, check out the Conduit Street blog. For Dr. Lawrence Polsky, this is Sarah Sample signing off, and we will talk to you soon. Stay safe out there.